female folk singer is dead after she was attacked by a pair of coyotes. What is the monkey doing? Tell me what's going on. He ripped her face off! We actually have a trainer in the water with one of our whales. If I show weakness, if I retreat, I may be hurt, I may be killed. Baby Azaria Chamberlain was taken by a dingo back in 1980. Oh, Sharky, as I say, I about 30 years ago. What a wonderful night it was. I always remember the moon was at its fullest. In fact, I'd never seen such a beautiful night. And as I was pushing the old bike, I heard these rattling of these chains. And I thought to myself, oh, well, that's nothing. That's just a matter of a, a horse strand off the marshes. That kept coming nearer and nearer. Welcome back to Man Eaters. The only true crime podcast on the internet where all the killers are real animals. And welcome to another edition of Man Eaters Killer Cryptids. Today, we are talking about spectral black dogs. That intro you just heard was of a man from Yorkshire, I believe, who was telling the story of how he encountered one such spectral black dog known as the Black Shuck. Before we begin today's episode, I want to thank a very special listener, one of my day ones, one of my faves, one of my pals, a pal of the program, a real beast of the broadcast, uh, Ellie May, emailed months ago, years ago, it was actually last year, I'm just looking, uh, September of last year, um, saying, I just finished the most recent Killer Cryptid episode and would like to suggest a local cryptid. Local being from Yorkshire for me, which is the Black Shark, a cryptic black dog that has a fascinating history. Uh, that was a while ago, so I don't know what episode uh, Ellie was listening to, but yes, we are finally able to tackle the Black Shark. When I first started researching the Black Shark, I realized it's one of many versions of the same uh, family of legend of the spectral black dog. Uh, and we're going to get into that in just a moment. So uh, yeah, get strap in, strap on. Put your strap-ons on, everyone. Put your man-eater license strap-on. I've been thinking about doing merch, you know, t-shirts, maybe a book, something like that. But a strap-on might also be a strapping idea. What do you guys think? Wow, terrible. I, I telepathically heard you all resonate the idea that that was awful. So uh, yeah, we're not going to do that. Maybe a t-shirt, maybe a baseball cap, maybe a book. Certainly no strap-ons. Okay, everybody, strap in and let's visit the very, very uh, fascinating world of spectral black dogs. Spectral black dogs, also known as ghostly black dogs, are a recurring motif in folklore and legends across various cultures in Europe. These mysterious and supernatural creatures are often associated with darkness, death, and the supernatural realm. While specific details and interpretations vary, spectral black dogs share some common characteristics and legends throughout different regions. Appearance-wise, spectral black dogs are typically described as large, black, and menacing in appearance. They are often larger than ordinary dogs, sometimes as big as a calf or even larger. Their fur is described as black and often shaggy or unkempt, lending them to a wild and eerie appearance. The most distinctive feature of these dogs is their eyes, which are often reported as glowing or fiery red, yellow, or even green. These spectral black dogs are believed to roam various locations, including lonely roads, crossroads, graveyards, and other areas associated with death or the supernatural. 
They are often considered omens or harbingers of, harbingers of misfortune, appearing as warnings of impending tragedy or death. In some legends, they are seen as protectors or guardians, whilst in others, they are portrayed as malevolent entities that bring curses and disasters. The legend of the legend surround. The legends surrounding spectral black dogs have deep historical roots and are found in various cultures. In English folklore, creatures like the Black Shark, Barghest, or Padfoot are prominent examples. In Scandinavian folklore, similar entities known as Grimm or Girger are described. In Celtic mythology, the Cushi in Scotland and the Gwigli in Wales share similar characteristics, and I'm probably mispronouncing a lot of those. I apologize to all our Scots and our Welsh, our Scots and our Welsh listeners. Bad. These spectral black dogs often have connections to specific locations and may be associated with particular families or landmarks. Encounters with spectral black dogs are often described as eerie and unsettling experiences. Witnesses report feelings of dread, fear, or a sense of being watched when these creatures appear. They are known to suddenly materialize and then vanish without a trace, adding to their mysterious nature. Some accounts even mention physical contact or attack by these dogs resulting in injuries or death. The origins and explanations of spectral black dogs vary. Some theories suggest that these black legends could be inspired by actual sightings of large, rare black canines, whilst others propose they'd represent a symbolic manifestation of death or an otherworldly presence. Folkloric tales and supernatural beliefs surrounding these creatures have been passed down through generations, contributing to their enduring presence in local lore. Spectral black dogs have also made their way into literature, art, and pop culture. They've appeared in various works of fiction, such as Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's The Hounds of Baskerville, where the spectral black dog plays a central role. The symbolism and imagery of these creatures continue to capture the imagination with modern interpretations often incorporating them into urban legends, ghost stories, and paranormal investigations. Now, whether they are seen as supernatural guardians, omens of doom, or embodiments of the unknown, spectral black dogs continue to fascinate and intrigue. Their presence in folklore and cultural narratives reflect humanity's enduring fascination with the supernatural and the allure of the mysterious. These spectral canines stand as enduring symbols of the unexplained and the boundaries between the natural and supernatural world. Our first example of a spectral black dog is the black shark, thanks in no small part to our favorite, one of our favorite fans, Ellie. Let's jump into the black shark. The legend of Black Shark has deep roots in English folklore, and its origins can be traced back to ancient times. The creature's appearance and behavior bear resemblance to other supernatural beings found in mythologies around the world, such as the Barghest in northern England, the Grimm in Scandinavia, and the Cushi in Scottish folklore. These spectral black dogs are often associated with death, the supernatural, or otherworldly entities. Now, one of the most famous accounts of the Black Shark occurred on August 4th, 1577 in the coastal town of Blithburg, Suffolk. According to the legend, during a violent thunderstorm, Black Shark burst into the local church, causing the roof to collapse and killing a congregation of worshippers. The creature then made its way to the nearby town of Bungay, where it reportedly left scorch marks on the doors of St. Mary's Church. These events became known as the Black Shark's Terror and left a lasting impression on local communities. 
Throughout history, sightings and encounters with Black Shuck have been reported by people from various walks of life. Some tales describe the creature as a benevolent guardian spirit, while others portray it as a malevolent, malevol malevolent entity. In some accounts, Black Shark is said to appear only to those who are destined to die or experience misfortune, foretelling their impending doom. These encounters often leave witnesses with a sense of fear or and a lasting belief in the supernatural. The imagery and symbolism associated with Black Shuck have influenced literature, art, and pop culture. The creature made appearances in a number of works of fiction, including H.P. Lovecraft's story, The Hound, where a cursed artifact summons a similar spectral dog. Black Shuck has also been depicted in paintings, illustrations, and sculptures, further cementing his status as an icon and figure of English folklore. In recent times, the legend of Black Shark has gained renewed interest with cryptozoologists and paranormal enthusiasts exploring its origins and possible explanations. Some theories propose that the legend may have originated from, from real-life encounters with large black dogs, such as the Newfoundland breed, which could have been perceived as supernatural or eerie due to the atmospheric conditions or exaggerated over time. Regardless of the creature's true nature, the legend of the Black Shark continues to captivate the imagination and curiosity of people both locally and internationally, including our pal of the, prod of the podcast, Ellie. It serves as a reminder of the enduring power of folklore to shape cultural identities and preserve historical narratives while sparking fascination with the mysterious and unknown. Whether it is a spectral guardian, a harbinger of doom, or a fascinating myth, Black Shark remains an intriguing part of, English's, of England's rich tapestry of legends and supernatural lore. The Grim, also known as the Grimhund or the Church Grim, holds a prominent place in the folklore and superstitions of both English and Scandinavian cultures. The concept of a spectral black dog serving as a guardian or protector has deep roots in the mythology of Northern Europe and the Grimm is considered one of its most notable manifestations. In Scandinavian folklore, the Grimm is often associated with the concept of the Hunsvilga, or spirit animal. It is believed that individuals may have a spiritual connection to a particular animal, and upon their death, their spirit takes the form of that animal to continue its protective role. The Grimm, in this context, is seen as the manifestation of a guardian spirit, connected to a specific church or burial ground, and tasked with protecting the sanctity of the place and its inhabitants. English folklore also attributes similar attributes to the Grimm. According to the legends, the first person buried in a churchyard would become the eternal companion of the Grimm. It was believed that this individual, often referred to as the Church Grimm, would take the form of a large black dog and guard the grounds. The Grimm was considered a protector of the church and its community, safeguarding it against evil spirits, witches, and other supernatural threats. The Grimm was seen as a benevolent presence, but also associated with the foretelling of death. Its appearance or howling near a home or individual was considered an ominous sign that someone in the vicinity would soon pass away. People believed that hearing the Grimm's howls on a stormy night was an omen of impending doom. In some cases, the Grimm was even said to physically appear to individuals, signaling their demise. The depiction of the Grimm varied across different regions and time periods. It was often described as a large black dog with shaggy fur, glowing or fiery eyes, and sometimes even having the ability to speak. 
the dog's size could range from that of a typical canine to that of a calf or even larger. It was believed to possess supernatural qualities such as invisibility, the ability to shapeshift, or the power to pass through solid objects. The Grimm's association with churches and burial grounds can be traced back to ancient pagan beliefs. Dogs were often considered sacred animals associated with death, similar to how in ancient Egypt's caps were associated with the spiritual afterlife. In Scandinavian mythology, dogs were believed to guide the souls of deceased people to the realm of the dead. Over time, as Christianity spread throughout Europe, these pagan beliefs became intertwined with Christian customs and folklore, giving rise to the legend of the Grimm. The Grimm's influence extends beyond folklore and has found its way into various forms of literature, art, and pop culture. Its presence can be seen in numerous literary works, such as Thomas Hardy's The Return of the Native, where the haunting figure of the Heath Dog bears a resemblance to the Grimm. Additionally, the Grimm has made appearances in contemporary fantasy and role-playing games, where it is often portrayed as a fearsome guardian or a formidable creature to be faced. It's also been spotted in the Harry Potter series when I think a serious no when he drinks the tea and it's the Grimm Emma Thompson's fucking fantastic by the way while the Grimm remains firmly entrenched in the realm of mythology and folklore it serves as a testament to humanity's enduring fascination with the supernatural and mysterious the legends surrounding the Grimm reflect our deep-rooted beliefs in spiritual guardianship the thin line between the living and the dead and the significance of animals as intermediaries between realms the Grimm's enduring presence in cultural narratives continues to capture and intrigue, reminding us of the powerful role that folklore and superstition play in shaping our understanding of the world. The Kushi, spelled C-U-S-I-T-H, holds a significant place in Scottish folklore and is deeply rooted in the country's mythology and traditions. It is often associated with the fairy realm, which is believed to exist alongside the mortal world, but remains hidden to all but a few. The connection between the Kushi and the fairy realm adds an element of enchantment and mysticism to this legend. Legends of the Kushi vary throughout different regions of Scotland, but certain themes and characteristics remain consistent. In some tales, the Kushi is said to have the ability to shapeshift into various forms, such as a black dog, a hare, or a shadowy humanoid figure. The shapeshifting ability allows it to move swiftly and silently, appearing and disappearing at will. The Kushi is often associated with specific times of year, particularly Samhain, or Halloween, or Beltane. During these periods, when the veil between the mortal world and the spirit realm is believed to be thinnest, the Kushi is said to be more active and can be encountered more easily. Some stories suggest it would roam Scottish countrysides, especially on moonlit nights, guarding sacred sites and protecting from trespassers. Now, while the Kushi is often portrayed as a creature to be feared, not all encounters with it are necessarily negative. In some accounts, it is described as a protector of the land and its inhabitants. It is believed that those who show respect for nature and demonstrated a pure heart might receive the creature's benevolent assistance or guidance. The Kushi's eerie howling is a distinct characteristic mentioned in many stories. Its mournful cry is said to be heard during the night, echoing through the hills and valleys, sending shivers down the spines of those who hear it. The howl is often considered an omen of impending death or tragedy, warning those who hear it to stay vigilant and cautious. 
The legend of the Kushi has inspired artists, writers, and storytellers throughout the centuries. Its presence can be found in various forms of Scottish art, including traditional folk songs, poetry, and visual representations. The creature's portrayal in modern fantasy literature and role-playing games has further popularized its image and expanded its reach to a global audience. As with many mythical creatures, the existence of Kushi is a matter of belief and interpretation. Some view it as purely a creation of folklore and imagination, while others speculate that the legends might have been inspired by encounters with large, unusual animals or natural phenomena. Regardless of its origins, the legends of the Kushi serve as a testament to the rich tapestry of Scottish folklore, carrying echoes of ancient beliefs, customs, and the enduring connection between humans and the natural world. It embodies the enigmatic, untamed spirit of the Scottish Highlands and continues to captivate those fascinated by the mysteries and wonders of the supernatural. The Barghest is deeply ingrained in the folklore of northern England, where its presence has been felt for centuries. The word Barghest, spelt B-A-R-G-H-E-S-T, is believed to have its root in the Old Norse or Old English, reflecting the influence of Viking and Anglo-Saxon cultures on the region's mythologies. Throughout history, the Barghest has taken on different names and variations in different areas, such as Barghest in Yorkshire or the Padfoot in Lancashire. Lancashire. I can't say that word very well. I'm sorry, Ellie. <laughs> Legends surrounding the Barghest often portray it as a formidable or supernatural creature. It is said to be larger and more menacing than any ordinary dog, possessing an aura of malevolence and instilling fear in those who encounter it. Its piercing eyes, often described as glowing red or yellow, are believed to possess an otherworldly intensity that can freeze one in terror. The Barghest's eerie howls and growls echo through the night, adding to its reputation as a bringer of doom. One prominent aspect of the Barghest's legend is its association with death and tragedy. The creature is often believed to appear before a death or disaster, serving as an omen or warning. It's been linked to specific families or local communities with tales of the Barghest foretelling the demise of a prominent figure or the downfall of a lineage. In some stories, the Barghest is even said to cause the death or misfortune itself, leading some to view it as a malevolent being. The Barghest is frequently connected to specific, uh, specific landscapes such as moors, forests, and graveyards, where it is said to dwell. These settings evoke a sense of mystery and the supernatural, heightening the atmosphere of the creature's presence. It is believed to patrol these areas, guiding them and ensuring the boundaries between the world of the living and spirit realm remain intact. The creature's shape-shifting abilities are another intriguing aspect of the Barghest legend. Some tales describe it taking on the form of a headless man or a woman in white, adding to its air of otherworldliness. The ability to transform into different guises further reinforces its supernatural nature and its ability to confound and terrify those who encounter it. The Barghest's influence extends beyond folklore and has made appearances in literature, art, and popular culture. Its presence in classic novels such as Bram Stoker's Dracula and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's The Hounds of Baskerville has solidified its status as an iconic figure in Gothic literature. The creature has also inspired contemporary authors and artists who continue to draw upon its dark and mysterious aura. 
As with many of the cryptids and mythical beings we've spoken about on the show, skepticism exists regarding the existence of the Barkhas. Some people believe the tales are purely products of folklore, whilst others maintain that they may have originated from misinterpretations of natural phenomena or sightings of actual large black dogs. Nonetheless, the enduring presence of the Barghest in the cultural landscape of Northern England serves as a testament to its significance and its enduring allure. The legend of this spectral black dog continues to captivate and intrigue, perpetuating a sense of wonder and fascination with the supernatural. Its portrayal as a foreboding creature associated with death and its links to specific locations in Northern England have solidified its place in the rich tapestry of folklore. Now, whether perceived as a guardian or a malevolent force, the Barghest stands as a testament to humanity's enduring fascination with the unknown or our ability to weave captivating tales around the creatures that inhabit our imagination. Now, the next spectral black dog is one that is particularly interesting and also particularly difficult to pronounce. It's from Wales, a Welsh mythology. We are talking about the Gwilgi? I think that is how it's pronounced. The Gwilgi, pronounced or spelled G-W-Y-L-L-G-I because Wales. The Gwilgi holds a significant place in Welsh, Welsh mythology and is deeply rooted in the country's folklore. The origins of the creature can be traced back to ancient Celtic and pre-Christian beliefs where dogs held symbolic importance as guardians and guides between realms. In Welsh folklore, the Gwilgi is associated with death, the supernatural, and the boundary between the living and the spirit world. It is believed to be a bringer of doom, appearing as a forewarning of impending tragedy or disaster. The creature is said to be able to materialize before accidents, illnesses, or untimely deaths, instilling a sense of fear and unease in the communities who encounter it. The Gwilgi is commonly described as a large black dog with shaggy fur and piercing glowing eyes that emit an otherworldly light. Its appearance is often accompanied by eerie sounds such as howls, growls, and unearthly barks. The creature is said to have sharp fangs and claws representing its ferocious nature and the potential harm it can inflict. Legends of the Gwilgi often emphasize its association with specific locations. It is believed to wander desolate moors, misty hillsides, and lonely crossroads, areas often considered liminal spaces where the boundaries between worlds can blur. Graveyards are another common haunt of the Gwilgi, heightening the association with death and the supernatural. Encounters with the Gwilgi are rare, and typically occur during nights of darkness, fog, or stormy weather. Witnesses often describe feeling an immense sense of dread and being overcome by an unexplained chill in the presence of the creature. Some accounts mention the Gwilgi vanishing into thin air or transforming into other forms, heightening its mysterious and supernatural nature. The Gwilgi's influence extends beyond folklore, as does many of the black dogs that we've talked about. It's found its place in Welsh literature and poetry. It's been featured in the works of renowned Welsh writers such as R.S. Thomas and Dylan Thomas, who often drew along the rich tapestry of Welsh folklore and mythology in their writings. These literary ref references contribute to the enduring legacy of the Gwilgi in Welsh culture. Whilst the existence of this spectral black dog remains a matter of belief and interpretation, its legend serves as a significant purpose in Welsh folklore. 
The creature embodies the fears, the uncertainties, and the mysteries that can surround death and the supernatural. It acts as a cautionary figure, reminding individuals to respect the boundaries between worlds and be mindful of the consequences of their actions. Those are just some of the spectral black dogs that I was going to talk about today. There are many others that exist in Europe and throughout the rest of the world, including in Latin America and North America. There are other creatures such as Padfoot, Striker and Trash, the Chichko, the Yeath Hound and the Wished Hounds. In fact, there are so many of these animals, these cryptid animals, that it is tempting to do a second episode. So perhaps stay tuned for a part two of Spectral Black Dogs. Humanity's enduring fascination with the spectral black dogs speaks to humanity's enduring interest into the unknown and our deep-seated need to explore the realms of mystery and the supernatural. The legends of the Black Shark, the Grim, Gwilgi, and more continue to captivate imagination and serve as a testament to the power of folklore in shaping cultural identities and preserving ancient beliefs. And there you have it, guys. Spectral black dogs, at least four or five of them. As I said, there are so many more, and I am very tempted to do another edition of this because uh, they are so goddamn interesting. As you probably picked up, there is a lot of repetition. There are a lot of consistencies between the different mythologies, but they also have their differences depending on the region, of course. I'd love to hear from you if you are from any of these regions. If you're from Wales or Scotland or Northern England uh, or any of those places. I don't think any of those accents were good, by the way. Don't think that I think they were good, for God's sake. Uh, if you live in any of those regions in the UK or in Scandinavia, of course, uh, please let me know what your what your thoughts are on this. If you've ever heard of these uh, black dogs, these spectral black dogs, if they were legends that you were told as children or if they are things that you tell your children currently, I'd love to hear more about how this feels coming from where you live. Um, once again, thank you to Ellie, one of our day ones for sending through that suggestion. A very interesting cryptid. Uh, of course, I started out just looking at the Black Shark and came to realize that the Black Shark is just one of many different versions of a very similar legend, okay? Um, but of course, very uh, important differences, cultural differences and religious differences depending on where they come from. I also apologize if I pronounced anything wrong. Gwilgi in particular. Welsh people just have their own thing going on and I respect the shit out of it. I think that if I had to imagine anyone running into one of these spectral black dogs or any black dog, I think my favorite would probably be, uh, wasn't the Barkas, the the, um, uh, the Cushy in Scotland. That'd be fun. I like to imagine like a, not to play on any potential, uh, you know, stereotypes, but uh, a drunken Scottish man in a kilt wandering out of the pub after a pint of, uh, now Scots don't drink Guinness, do they? Maybe Guinness or a, a Scotch. How about that? A nice Scotch. And he's walking around and he sees a spectral black dog. Holy fuck, it's the Kushi. Fuck me. Get, I'll whip you with my kilt, ya Kushi. Oh, wait, that's just a chihuahua. That's just a wee little puppy. I'm a very talented man. <laughs> uh, thank you for listening to that story. I hope you found that as fascinating as I did researching it. Um, yeah, 
As I said, if you have any experiences with spectral black dogs, maybe you've seen one, let me know. Email me, manitispod at gmail.com. Uh, I'd be very fascinated to hear your thoughts on that. And let me know if you'd like a, a part two on this as well. I think maybe there does deserve to be a Killer Cryptid Spectral Black Dogs Volume 2 where we can talk about some of the uh, spectral black dogs from around the world. I'm interested in hearing about um, the ones in mainland Europe. I'm um, just looking here. There's... Uh, what. Oh, ooh, this is interesting. Oudrode Ogen, or the f- the Beast of Flanders from Belgium. That's interesting. Or uh, we've got one here from Latin America. There's a few. Pero Negro. Oh, ne- oh, <laughs> that just means black dog. I thought I got in trouble there for a second. The Nalhue, or from Mexico. The Huey Chivo, Huey Peck from Mexico. What else have we got here? In North America. Uh, uh. Can't see any names. Just a dog haunting a place called Hanging Hills. There is a lot of interesting stuff here. I think we need to we need to look into it. Um, of course, in popular culture, uh, I mentioned Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's The Hounds of Baskerville. Uh, I think that could be, you know, a reference to the Black Shark or the the Basset, um, or even the Gwilgi, perhaps. Um, and like I mentioned, uh, it did appear in the Harry Potter series, um, The Grim, a giant spectral dog that haunts churchyards and an omen of death. According to Harry Potter's divination professor, Professor Trelawney, another reference to the legend can be found in the same book, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, Padfoot being the name of Sirius Black, an animagus who can turn into a large black dog and mistaken as the Grimm by Harry. Interesting. Oh, this is interesting too. English rock band Led Zeppelin's song Black Dog is loosely inspired by the trope of black dogs. Incidentally as well as a reference to a nameless black Labrador Retriever that wanders around Headley Grange Studios during recording. There you go. Interesting stuff, folks. Interesting indeed. We are going to take a wee little break. Take a wee little break. Pat your little black puppies. And uh, yeah, we'll come back. We might have some ads. Most likely we won't have some ads. But if we do have some ads... Boy, howdy, you better listen to buy whatever they tell you to buy, because it's money in my goddamn pocket. Okay, all right, have a break, go and do a wee. And we are back. Did you have a good break? Did you purchase something from the ads? I hope you did. Guys, gals, and my non-binary pals, it is time for the scratch of the day. Scratch of the day, of course, the segment where we look at news articles from around the world regarding to animal attacks, human animal conflict, and anything to do with people getting bitten by nasties. Uh, today, we're looking at a story that was actually suggested to me from one of my workmates, my colleagues. Um, they were telling me how uh, orcas have taken to attacking and ramming boats. It's apparently never been seen before, and so I wanted to uh, talk to you a little bit about that. So, this. Um, <laughs> Great website name, Giant Freaking Robot. Uh, This is an article written by uh, TJ Small. I want to give credit where credit's due. Animals are learning from each other how to attack humans. According to a new report, orca whales are sinking boats off the coast of Europe in what seems like an organized campaign. They call them killer whales for a reason. According to a recent write-up in Live Science, orca whales have been sinking boats off the coast of Europe, apparently following the lead of a traumatized whale who likely initiated the first attack after being harmed by sailors. These animal attacks have seafarers on high alert and appear to be following a distinct pattern which pods of whales emerge from the stern of a sailing vessel and strike the rudder like raptors cornering their prey in the Jurassic Park film. 
Jurassic Park could be a Mandy to Movies movie. Sorry, I'm thinking out loud. <clears throat> Since the first of these animal attacks was documented in 2020, killer whales have only become more brazen in their assaults, causing three boats to sink in the span of as many years. Of course, as biologists at the University of Aveiro in Portugal, such as Alfredo Lopez Fernandez, have stated, these attacks represent an incredibly small sample of human interactions with the wild creatures. Most orcas are gentle giants in regard to their relationships with humans, and as Fernandez points out, there have been over 500 peaceful interactions with the whales during this time that the boats have been attacked. Of course, it is disconcerting to the researchers that the animal attacks appear to be a learned behavior that has spread throughout the whales' culture. Orca whales are incredibly social creatures, and some, and some behaviors such as attacking boats can be taught to friends and colleagues among their pod, and passed down to children as an important rite of passage. This could mean that pods of young orcas don't even hold any malice towards the boat or the people they are attacking, but simply see the activity as a bonding exercise after having witnessed adult whales do it in their youth. Marine re researchers have still not been able to pinpoint what exactly sparked this wildfire of assaults from killer whales in the community, though the leading theory is that the whale who initiated contact with the first vessel was a victim of unlawful fishing practices seems to grow more valid with each passing day. The spurned whale who began this John Wick-style revenge rampage seems to be a female orca researchers have named White Gladys, with Fernandez stating that the initial animal attack was performed in a response to her suffering a quote-unquote critical moment of agony. Since then, some groups of whales have interpreted the behavior as a call to action, sinking another pair of vessels in the following two years. The animal attacks have, of course, been detrimental to sailors and orcas alike, with four Iberian orcas being found dead since 2020, likely as a result of this dangerous practice. The whale's pattern of ramming into the rudders of ships obviously damages the vessel, sometimes enough to sink them entirely, but it is also incredibly harmful to the whale's heads, which can sustain major trauma after reaching underwater speeds of 35 miles an hour. For now, things seem a bit bleak in the world of marine research, but in the infamous words of United States President George W. Bush, I know that human beings and fish can coexist peacefully. Did he really say that? Why did he say that? There you go. What an interesting story. What an interesting thing. It's not often in the world of animals and nature that you see something new, right? It, uh, behaviors are obviously learned over years and years and years, millions of years of evolution. It's rare to see a new behavior learned. Uh, but that's what we're seeing with the orca. We've spoken at length about orca. They are fascinating creatures. They're one of my favorite animals. They're so so much interesting shit about orcas. One of my favorite facts, and I hope I am remembering this correctly, because it's a while since I've researched uh, orcas. Um, orcas have different languages. Um, if you put an orca from New Zealand or, you know, the waters from around New Zealand next to an orca from, say, like, the waters of Iceland, you put them together, they will be unable to communicate effectively uh, as they would if they were with someone from their own pod or in their own region. Just another interesting thing. So, like the article said, very social creatures, uh, and they seem to be taking... I think they're, they're bowing down to a bit of peer pressure here, if I'm not mistaken. This first... Orca, who obviously you know went through a bit of trauma with a with a fishing vessel or whatever. Um, I think someone needs to sit these little baby killer whales down and say, "Hey, listen, don't just listen to your friends, okay? Don't do it just because they're doing it. If 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 Gladys were to ram a shipping vessel full speed with her head, would you do it? 
at the moment, the Yorkers are saying, yeah, yeah, I would. Gladys is fucking cool. We love Gladys. Um, but Gladys might be leading these Orker into a bit of trouble. Um, and of course, uh, you know, I don't have any mal... I mean, I don't love commercial fishing. It's not a great practice that's happening. Uh, I don't have any malice towards the people who are on the ships because oftentimes, you know, they're, they're just doing their jobs. They're poor people. They need to feed their families. And that is what their village does. They fish, fish. Um, but it is, and without, you know, without maligning those people and without victim blaming, there is a certain kind of uh, feeling of justice when this does happen, um, especially since no people have actually been hurt. Of course, you know, sinking a vessel, it's, it could be someone's livelihood. So in, in that way, maybe it's not great, but there is a little bit of, for me, for me at least, a sense of a little bit of um, cosmic natural justice going on there. Okay, moving on to another story, my friends. Uh, we had, I had a beautiful email come through the other day from a, a listener, um, which was lovely, um, at, from Canada, from Eastern Canada, from Ontario, I believe, uh, her name was, let me have a look, I'm going to pull up the email actually and read some of it, because it was very interesting and very uh, worthwhile, so yeah, it was Shailene, Shailene, I'm not sure if Shailene is one of our day ones, in fact, she said she's not, she's just started the podcast, and she was listening to the uh, Bears and Bloodshed series, she just finished part one, uh, as of writing her email. So she said she's from Ontario, Canada, and her and her dog started listing. And she sent me a picture of her dog, Athena. Very cute. Um, so she also sent through some really interesting information about uh, bears, and as well as a few news articles. So I think I might link that into our little bit of uh, our scratch of the day. So um, Shailene writes, and I'm hoping that I didn't get anything wrong in uh, the episode, but if I did, apologies. Um, Shailene writes, just so you know, actually, she's Canadian, so I've got to do the accent. Uh, sorry, just... <laughs> sorry. Eh? No, that's not how they sound. They're just like... Okay. Just so you know, because I know you know you like to know things, there aren't any brown bears or grizzly attacks in Ontario because they are native to the West Coast, and there aren't any in eastern Canada. Only black bears here, and actually, there was one spotted in a town near me. It was very unusual for us, and a big news day. She sent through a link, uh, and we're going to read that. Uh, she did say, uh, spoiler alert for the news article, which we're about to read. This guy was a three-year-old male and he was safely relocated. So it's a happy ending. We get a happy ending story today. Okay, um, black bear tranquilized and removed from tree in Halton region. So this is sent in from, uh, like I said, Shailene uh, from her local news uh, organization, I believe. So let's read what happened to, near Shailene's house. Um, this is written by Abby O'Brien and this is CTV News from Toronto. The Ministry of National Resources safely tranquilized a black bear and removed it from a tree in Halton region Thursday evening, according to police. A tweet posted just before 7pm by Halton Regional Police Thursday evening said a black bear was spotted in the area of McKinnon Avenue and Barber Drive in Georgetown, Ontario. Police asked foot traffic to, traffic to avoid the area and for bystanders to move along. Just before 9.45pm, police said the ministry had safely tranquilized the bear in a tree at the time and relocated it. Uh, I will read the tweet for you in the mandatory Canadian accent. Black bear sighting in area of McKinnon Avenue and Barber Drive in Georgetown. Foot traffic is <laughs> it's not even close. Is asked to avoid the area and bystanders are asked to please move along. Police are on scene and working to resolve the situation. Update! This is them. Update! The Ministry of National Resources was called to assist. The bear was safely tranquilized and removed from the tree to be re relocated. Thank you for your patience. Aw. 
that is so Canadian. They said, thank you for your patience. I love that. I wonder if these were Mounties. Are these Mounties? No, they're just regular boring police. Oh, there you go. There's an interesting uh, news article sent by Shailene. Thank you very, very much. Um, Shailene also said, uh, where is it? Uh, you probably cover it in the rest of the Bear Attack series. I haven't listened to it yet. Um, and I'm hoping I do cover it. Uh, while there aren't any grizzlies in eastern Canada, there are polar bears in Manitoba, and grizzly and black bears. I think that it's their southernmost habitat. Look up Churchill, Manitoba. They have a whole polar bear tourism industry. Uh, and then she goes on to say something about my pronunciation of coyotes being correct or incorrect. I think back when I was doing a coyote, or talking about coyotes, I was saying coyote, because that's how Australians kind of say coyote. I think it's regional. I think they're both kind of correct, but I will, from now on, on the podcast, I will officially be going with the American pronunciation of coyote. Okay, there you go. Um, anyway, uh, Shailene also says, anyway, here is a bear-related relevant link, uh, that I might... <laughs> that might be a fun and lighthearted end to scratch of the day. Well, you know what, Shailene? I think you're right. Let's read this fun and lighthearted um, <laughs> end to scratch of the day. So this article, uh, it's from CTV News. Uh, let's have a look. It's loading very slowly. It's loading very, very slowly. Was this a mistake? Have you fucking screwed me over, Shailene? Have you? Is it? You? Oh, sh- no, it's okay. You're off the hook, Shailene. Okay. From CTV News, same organization as the last uh, story, Bear helps itself to 60 cupcakes from Connecticut Bakery. Scares employees. <laughs> I love this. This is great. Um, okay, this is written by staff of the Associated Press. Okay, uh, from May 27th, so very recently. Okay, in Avon, Connecticut, a hungry black bear... <laughs> <laughs> this is great. A hungry black bear barged into the garage of a Connecticut bakery, scaring several employees, and then helped itself to 60 cupcakes before ambling away. <laughs> Wonderful. Workers at Taste by Spellbound in the town of Avon were loading cakes into a van for delivery on Wednesday when the bear showed up. There are between 1,000 and 1,200 black bears living in Connecticut, the state environmental agency says, with sightings last year in 158 of the state's um, 169 towns and cities. Bakery owner Miriam Stevens wrote in an Instagram post that she heard employee Maureen Williams screaming bloody murder and yelling that there was a bear in the garage. Williams told TV station WTNH that she shouted to scare the bear off, but it retreated and came back three times. Williams said that the bear charged at her, so she backed out of the garage and ran. That's a good, good, good idea. Surveillance video obtained by WTNH shows bakery workers walking around the side of the business to try and scare the bear, but then running away after it scares them. The video shows the bear dragging a container of cupcakes from the garage into the parking lot. Steven said the bear ate 60 cupcakes. Wow. Who are you going to send the invoice to? You can't just throw it in the forest. A baker finally got the bear to leave by honking a car horn, Williams said. The four-footed thief, that's cute, the four-footed thief was gone by the time police and officers from the Connecticut Department of Energy and Environmental Protection arrived. No one was injured in the encounter, one in a series of troubling interactions between black bears and humans in Connecticut. 
A 74-year-old woman suffered bites to her arms and legs last month when she was attacked by a bear while walking her dog in, Hart in a Hartford suburb, the first such attack this year. There was also two attacks last year, including one in October when a 10-year-old boy was mauled in a backyard. The frequency and severity of bear-human interactions is increasing, deep spokesman Paul Coleman said on Friday. Statistics compiled by the department showed that there were a record of 67 reports of bears entering the Connecticut homes in 2022. The previous record was, 50, uh, was 45 in 2020. On Friday, a bear cub wandered into a neighborhood... Oh, that's so cute. A bear cub wandered into a neighborhood near downtown Hartford and climbed up a tree. Police blocked off the street as authorities decided how to handle the situation. The bear was still in the tree on Friday afternoon. They didn't resolve it. What's going to happen with the bear? Oh, that's going to be a good follow-up. That was a nice, fun, light-hearted end to our Scratch the Day segment. Thank you, Shailene. Uh, on a producer level, I think you've noticed that I always seem to fuck myself and end up with a deeply tragic and heartbreaking story to end off this segment. So that's a good one. Thank you very much. Um, of course, if you want to send in, you know, Scratch of the Day episode or uh, suggestions like that, um, like Shailene's just done, you can do that. Um, best thing to do would be to email, uh, like Shailene has done, uh, maneaterspod at gmail.com, or of course on the Instagram, I'll talk all about that at the end of the episode, but yeah, thank you for, uh, for sending that through Shailene, that was very helpful, um, and thank you for the picture of your dog, apparently I must have mentioned a while ago doing a segment like Doggo of the Day or Doggo of the Week, uh, and Doggo of the Week is, uh, is, is Shailene's, uh, beautiful six-year-old pup, uh, golden retreat no golden retreat german shepherd athena beautiful picture of this pup uh thank you thank you shailene what a lovely uh I i've got to be honest when i received that email a few days ago it really made my day it was lovely so um yeah thank you to anyone else who um has sent me messages, uh, send pictures of dogs and you're more likely to get on the show. Okay, we're going to finish off our episode today with uh, one of my favorite subjects. We're going to talk about a beastly biography. So a beastly biography, it's a chance to talk about an animal that's not an A-list star, it's not a tiger, it's not a croc, okay, it's not a snake, it's an animal that's an apex predator that poses potential danger to humans, but we don't get to talk about very much, and we're just going to talk about the biology behind behind this animal. I'm so sorry, I just burped. So this animal is one that we have talked about on the show before. We're talking about an apex predator from the frigid wastelands of Antarctica. My internet is very slow today, so it's just loading up, but um, we're talking about the leopard seal. And if you've ever watched Happy Feet, you'd be traumatized just like me. The leopard seal is a very scary uh, animal, also known as the sea leopard, or the leopard seal. Actually, that's the only two names that they're called. Um, the leopard seal, okay? is the second largest species of seal in the Antarctic after the southern elephant seal. That's another animal we should look at, by the way. Elephant seals are fucking fascinating. Its only natural predator is the orca. It is the only species in the genus Hydrungra. Its closest relatives are the Ross seal, the crab-eater seal, and the Weldell seal, which together are known as the tribe of Lobodontini seals. Isn't that lovely? Leopard seals have a uh, oh, sinuous, that's an interesting word, 
body, and their powerful jaws open widely to show extremely long canine teeth. They have large, reptile-like heads with long, flexible necks. Their overall body shape is long and slender, which makes them very agile in the water. Their coloring is different dorsally to uh, ventrally, as their back is dark gray, their underside is silvery gray, and there are dark and light spots all over the entire body. The coats of juveniles is much softer and thicker and has a dorsal stripe with a light gray underside scattered with dark spots. Although males and females are similar in appearance, which is unusual for a seal, females are slightly larger than males. So what is their distribution? They live in a quite a you know, a surprising variety of places. Their main region is the waters of Antarctica, but they also appear in Oceania, South Africa, and uh, Sub-Saharan Africa as well. Um, so they can appear in Australia, Brazil, Chile, New Zealand, South Africa, uh, as well as, of course, Antarctica. Uh, the regions that they, the oceans that they patrol are the Atlantic Ocean and the Pacific Ocean. And their WWF biome is rock and ice. Leopard seals can be found in the circumpolar area on the Antarctic pack ice. A small number are found year-round on the uh, nearby sub-Antarctic islands just beyond the pack ice. Some have also been observed around coasts as far north as South Africa, South America, Australia, and New Zealand. But its main habitat is Antarctica on the pack ice or associated icebergs and ice flows. Um, let's talk about his diet and nutrition. Leopard seals are uh, primarily, they eat smaller seals, fish, squid, krill, penguins, and other birds. They are carnivorous animals, but they will also eat mollusks if they can, apparently. Um, let's talk about some stats. Let's get up in those stats. Um, the population size is above 35,000 individuals. They can live up to 26 years old. They have a top speed of 40 kilometers per hour in the water. They can weigh between 200 and 600 kilograms, which is quite large. Um, let me see if that's in pounds as well. It's between 400 and uh, 1,320 pounds. And their length is 1.2, uh, sorry, 2.4 meters to 3.5 meters they can get quite large they are very scary animals they have killed people before if you want to listen to an episode i believe there's an episode i did very early on something about like i can't remember what it was the arctic circle of hell i think the episode was called yeah anyway some fun facts for you the scientific name of the leopard seal hydrunga means water worker and the lepto lepitox is greek for the thin clawed animal when diving, a leopard seal's nose closes automatically and stays shut until it surfaces. The leopard seal gets its name from its spotted coat pattern, which I'm sure you could guess, but it also, they just look like scary things, man. These seals travel widely, some even going as far to the north as the coasts of southern parts of South America and South Africa. They are regularly seen around New Zealand. Leopard seals have unique, uh, unique cheek teeth that are shaped to allow them to strain krill from the water. Their loose jaw can open as far as 160 degrees. These seals swim so fast they can jump out of the sea onto the edge of the ice to get prey such as penguins. Leopard seals, like sea lions, have large front flippers which they steer and move through the water. Leopard seals are cool, one of my favorite animals, definitely one of my favorite favorite seals, probably my favorite seal, uh, and also one of the very, the, the, the large number of animals I would not like to meet in the water. There you go. Everybody, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for listening to the Beastly Biography and the Scratch of the Day and the main story, of course, talking about spectral black dogs. And thank you for uh, tuning in for another episode of Man Eaters uh, and Killer Cryptids. I do have one quick thing, a new segment we're going to call 
uh oh, Jimmy did a fucky wucky. Um, so yeah, I, this is the <laughs> Jimmy made a fucky wucky. That's the segment of the show where I uh, do some corrections if I've made a mistake on anything. And apparently, I made a mistake in the most recent episode talking about the pets of serial killers. I'm gonna pull it up now if I can find it. Uh, where? Oh God, where am I? Notifications on YouTube. So we had a comment from. Christopher, who is a day one listener, I believe, uh, and listens to the show on YouTube. If you didn't know, by the way, these, this show automatically gets uploaded to YouTube. I don't think anyone listens to it except for Christopher. Uh, but if you want to listen to your podcast on YouTube rather than wherever you have been listening to them, uh, it is an option. You can just look up uh, my YouTube channel, which is James Chapman, or just search Man Eaters. I'm sure it'll come up as well. Um, yeah, so I was talking about Blondie in the last episode, which was Hitler's dog, and apparently I misgendered him. Uh, or her, I should say. Uh, Stephen, uh, sorry, Christopher says, um, good show as always. Thank you. Just a quick correction though. Blondie was a female and had a litter of puppies. And cheers for setting the record straight about it not being Kool-Aid. Oh, that was about, um, I was talking about Jim Jones and the, uh, you know, the common expression, don't drink the Kool-Aid. That comes from the whole Jonestown massacre where they drank a bunch of Kool-Aid, except it wasn't Kool-Aid. It was Flavor-Aid, my friends. And uh, it wasn't a boy dog, it was a girl dog. There you go. I also saw a TikTok today, uh, like a Muslim sheik or something. Someone asked a question about a cat. And they gendered the cat. It's like, if the cat's on my prayer mat, should I move her? And he corrected the gendering by saying it. And I had a question for anyone uh, who might be from a different culture than myself. Is it normal in other cultures to to not gender animals? If there's any Muslim people listening, I'd be really interested to know to know that. Do animals get gendered in different cultures? In Western culture, we would gender them because I would say my cat is a girl because uh, she has a vagina. Um, but, you know, hey, it's 2023. That doesn't mean anything, okay? Uh, so, yeah, let me know. If, if you're from a different culture, I would love to know uh, what your thoughts are on, <laughs> on gendering animals. Like, what a weird place to end the episode. Wow. Uh, <laughs> great. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you, Christopher on YouTube. Thank you, Shailene. Thank you, Ellie. Especially thank you, Ellie, for uh, the wonderful suggestion of the Black Shark. If you would like to follow us on any of the social media bullshit, uh, guess what? You bloody can. I'm going to pull up all that stuff for you right now. Links, as always, are in the bio, of course. Um, I would like you to, uh, if you want, you can follow us on Facebook, ma- uh, facebook.com slash maniditispod, on Instagram at maniditispodcast, or my personal po- uh, Instagram at jimothychaps. You can also support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash Patreon is a great place to support me. I, of course, if you cannot afford it, I would never ask you to do that. But if you do have a couple extra bucks uh, that you think you might want to sling my way, you think the show is shit and needs some improvement, money helps, so you can do that. Uh, go to patreon.com slash man eaters we are going to be starting a new series of episodes starting next week probably a two-parter about shark attacks in south africa and little spoiler alert um there will be an extra bonus episode of that series only available on patreon so if you want to get that episode uh definitely go to the patreon for as little as five bucks a month you can support the show uh, you can cancel at any time and you get access to a you know, some, some extra perks. The more people that join up to the Patreon, the more I will post there um, at the moment. There's only a couple people, but they are beautiful, beautiful people who I love with all my heart and all my <laughs> willy. <laughs> very bad. Very, very bad. Um, one other thing, just before I go, I wanted to quickly say I'm looking at uh, 
for Spotify for the Man It Is podcast. Uh, we're currently at a 4.3 rating. Not bad, but I did notice there is 99 people who have reviewed the podcast, which is fantastic. I would love for the next episode for that to be over 100. So if you're on Spotify right now and you want to give us a, rank, a rating, go and do that. You'll be the 100th person. How exciting. Um, and of course, Please give it a five-star review if you can. It really helps me out. Guys, that is going to do it for my episode today. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We will be back next week with a new series on sharks in South Africa. Thank you for listening to Man Eaters. And as always, stay safe because as we've learned, it's a jungle out there.